I could not be happier that you're here. Could not be happier. And I think by the end of the morning, you're going to say, I'm so happy I was here. We've got an extraordinary morning for you. Just a few items, a few uh, housekeeping items. I want to continue to remind you of February 9th. It's going to be here. That's a Sunday. We'll have our normal services in the morning and then uh, 4.30 that evening. Uh, we're getting closer. Uh, this land is, uh, we've got some stories to tell you, some supernatural stories. We've already told you some of the stories. We're going to send out a link this week to the presentation. We're going to do another presentation. Many of you were attended the presentation. But uh, it's time to take that next step. And so we've got, we're in escrow on property, as you know. And, and we're going to be talking about it on that uh, February 9th and just trusting the Lord that he's going to do something supernatural and spectacular. And we're going to get the land. And then in his timing, we'll, we'll start the, uh, the building. And I, I got some more renderings from the architect this week. It's unbelievable. I got a... I got a, something, a, a, one of our, in our midst, uh, Philip the Smith III, who's doing installations everywhere. He says, I, I, I just, the Lord's given me a vision. He's going to do a huge artistic piece that's going to be part of the church. I, I mean, the Lord just keeps doing amazing things. So that's going to be February 9th, 4.30 p.m. Love to have you there. If you consider this kind of your calling, it's not just your church. It's a church is a calling. It's not just like where I attend. It's, it's a calling. It's a stewardship. So that'll be happening on February 9th. Now, afterwards, by the way, I just want to tell you, because we're going to kind of close this up in a different way today. Uh, if you're part of the Let's Do Lunch crowd, uh, Pastor Paul's uh, gig out there, meet afterwards out there and then go to lunch with one another. And uh, as Paul said, act like you like one another. And uh, no, you're going to meet people that you don't know, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a great afternoon. So uh, allow me to pray, and then I'm going to introduce our guests. We've got a wonderful morning. And let me just tell you in advance, before we go here, there's a sense in which the, sa the sacred and the secular just can't mix. And that's just not Jesus. I mean, Jesus is you are a preservative. You're salt. You go into a culture. You're light. Don't put it under a bushel. I think he's like, don't sit in your church and just be a light in your church and shine on other people and then go back out and kind of go into a hole I mean, as Steve will speak to this word, silo. Don't silo your faith. And today is going to be an extraordinary uh, picture of a, of a man, Truett Cathy, and then also Steve and Diane's message. Then I'll introduce Steve in a minute. Uh, allow me to pray for the morning first. Lord, we thank you. Oh, do we thank you for today. What a privilege to be here with our family and community and growing family. Lord, we, we the Church of the Red Door exists really for one purpose, and that is the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. Lord, you already reign and rule. You just not, you don't, you're not setting everything right yet because you have millions of people that you want to bring into your kingdom before you set everything right. And Lord, we want to be part of that. We want to be part of the calling that you have in this valley in partnership with many other churches. Lord, it's not just us independently of seeing this valley impacted by the glory and the magnificence of Jesus and then the story, the really the good news of the gospel. So, Lord, we're telling your story in a slightly different context within the context of a, of a man and woman's life, uh, their lives, and also then within a larger context of a business that was essentially dedicated to you and the glorification of Jesus in the earth. And uh, it is an amazing story. So I pray, Lord, that you will allow us to draw from it all individually unique, uniquely different things and that it would impact our lives and that we would walk away thinking more of Jesus, not more of Chick-fil-A or not more of uh, Steve and Diane or not more of anybody, but just that you, you would be riveted, Lord, that we would be riveted on you and your faithfulness to your creation. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So here's, as you can probably see, not a normal Sunday. Some of you may have caught you off guard a little bit. 
but I'm going to bring up now uh, Steve Robinson, who has, he's just recently retired, but so he's able to tell the story a little bit more effectively. He was the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer for Chick-fil-A. Yeah, you got it right. Eat more chicken, right? So in the first service, by the way, I told folks we have Sid Tull. Sid and Judy have a long time attended here, big parts of church at the Red Door. He was a huge, still is in the cattle business. His four sons are in the cattle business. I said, I don't know, what, what's a lot of cows? How many cows do you have to have to be? And I thought, a thousand seems like a lot of cows to have. He said, I said, well, like your son Amarillo, how many cows does he have? He says, oh, about 100,000 head. And I said, only in Texas could you say, oh, well, just a small uh, operation out there. So they are big cattlemen. And so when he knew Steve, I had introduced him to Steve before. Steve and I have been friends for quite a long, long time with Diane. And uh, I had introduced him. He called me this week, and he goes, well, I know he's going to have his book there. He goes, well, you tell the chicken man. That's what he calls Steve. You tell the chicken man I want to buy a bunch of those books. So uh, anyway, Sid was buying it. He was out there loving Only in Christ. Only in Christ could you bring chicken man together with beef man and somehow have some kind of unity. It's really the ultimate picture of the kingdom. So uh, anyway, former uh, um, CMO of Chick-fil-A, and would you please warmly welcome Steve Robinson, my dear friend. Hey, man. We get to do this again. Yeah, do I it love again. It. Good I love morning. It. I love Good you. Morning. I love you, you buddy. I love you. Well, Sid was up to his word. He bought about 10 books. I know he did. He wanted, he, honestly, Sid, this morning, yesterday, he says, how many books you guys? I don't know. I, but I, think he, I think we had him ship about 250. He goes, well, I'm going to buy every single one of them. I said, Sid, you can't buy every single one of them. <laughs> so uh, anyway, well, I'm, I'm excited. It was awesome first service. I just hope that we can be led by the Spirit again, Steve, mm -hmm. and, and get through mm -hmm. the story. So I want to. So start us out, and your lovely wife Diane is here. You guys have been married how many years now? My best friend for over 47 years. 47 years, 47 years, and you, yeah, that's right. And you met at the, the most significant university in Alabama, right? That's right, Auburn University. Auburn University, that's right. So, so uh, well, tell us a little bit about that, and tell us, I just want to know about a little bit about pre-Chick-fil-A, about your spiritual journey, yeah. and kind of how sure. you two came to the Jesus thing. Sure. So. Well, we both grew up in Alabama. Diane grew up in the middle of the state, <clears throat> and I grew up in a little town 10 miles from Gulf Shores, Foley, Alabama. Um, if any of you remember Kenny Stabler, that's where he played his high school football. Is that right? Yeah. I did not know that. He was three years ahead of me. Um, went to junior college. Uh, in Baymanette, just north of Foley. And then out of junior college, after having the chance to play baseball and basketball for two years, she and I met on a blind date at Auburn University. A wow. uh, significant event, however, occurred before I got to Auburn. When I was a sophomore in junior college, a bunch of my baseball and basketball buddies decided they wanted to go over to the Mobile Coliseum to hear this guy speak. His name was David Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, he'd written a book well. called The... Uh, crossing the switchblade about what the gospel was doing in gangs in New York City. Turns out he sold millions of these books. It was amazing. And I was, I never heard of him. So we went and I heard him unpack the power of the gospel and the, the, the grace of the gospel mm -hmm. uh, in that audience. And God woke me up to the reality that even though I'd been a part of a church, I was living a performance-based life. Quite frankly, rather legalistic. But it's, it's all I knew. It's all you know? you. Yeah, sure. And I was frustrated and I was um, demoralized. And if that's all there is to Christianity, I'm not sure what it's doing for me. And then I heard David share 
what grace was really all about, what Christ had done, not only for these guys in New York, but it suddenly registered what he'd done for me. What he'd done for you. And I I accepted Christ there. Did not grow much from that, but it was real. And obviously, I've never forgotten it. Sure. Ultimately read his book after the fact. So when I got to Auburn, a fraternity brother introduced me to Diane on a blind date. And the fact that she and I have been friends and, and love each other for over seven years, 47 years, is one of the reasons that guy's still a really good buddy of mine. Yeah, that's um, right. In fact, they come to see us at least once a year. And uh, we started to develop a, a walk together. We, we grew up not only physically, but we grew up spiritually together. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, um, she, was out of, she was out ahead of me a little bit. She discovered grace a little ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So uh, we both graduated from Auburn on June 6, um, 1972. <laughs> and, and then f- four days later, uh, we got married, June 10th. And 10 days later, we headed up to Northwestern, where I gr- well, went to Medill School of General- Journalism, the major in advertising. And we got, in we got some Northwestern alum here. I know the Turners are here from yeah. Chicago. And loved, uh, loved Auburn and <clears throat> loved Northwestern. And I went to Northwestern because of the... My dean at Auburn, um, when I told him what I wanted to do, that was one of three schools he recommended. Uh, my first job was out of Northwestern was Texas Instruments in the semiconductor group, and they had formed a marketing group to sell these, these newfangled gadgets, a handheld calculator. <laughs> um, so this is 1973-74. And, um, of course, we all have them now on our phones. I mean, phones right. do more now than this handheld calculator yeah, ever did. It's yeah. unbelievable. And, uh, but they were very product-oriented, very engineering-oriented. And I, I, even after a year, I was getting a little frustrated. Phone rings one evening. And it's Dan Hauser, the director of marketing for Six Flags Over Texas. And I had been in the same class with his brother in Northwestern. That's how he got my name. So you go from handheld computers to... Six Flags. <laughs> <laughs> I went from handheld computers, <laughs> product and price, to experience yeah. to, and brand. That's what I went to. Yeah. He interviewed me. He and his team interviewed me for an, a, an entire day, and they offered me the job. And the short of that is I worked for Six Flags for seven years at three different attractions. And the last four years, I served in Atlanta uh, as director of marketing for Six Flags. That had to be an amazing experience. I mean, just it was a learning amazing. process. It was a marketing brand lab. I mean, the Six Flags back then was, they're good now, but they were a great brand back right. there. And, uh, and, and here was a company in TL that was very engineering product focused. Here's a company that's very brand experience focused. So right. I learned a, a ton. So um, I'm, through that experience, I met some people at Chick-fil-A. Uh, trying to get them to build a restaurant in the park as a way to build their brand and create trial. Because they only had about 100 stores. They're all in malls. And um, they didn't do it. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to make money. And we told them, well, you're not going to make money. You're here to create brand awareness and trial. But the only people that are going to make money is us. Sure. So that, <laughs> that didn't work. So I'm, I'm director of marketing of Six Flags Over Georgia. And I'm going to skip ahead now. It's summer of 1980. Um, and it's early August, and our pastor, Clark Hutchinson at Eastside Baptist Church, asked me to chair a fundraising program for a new educational building at the church. Now, I'm only about 30. I'm, we're, not, we're not rich. We don't have tons of cash laying on the side someplace, and mm-hmm. I'm a little puzzled why he would ask me to do this. 
Well, we had kids in the, not only in the church, but we had kids in the, the Christian school, and the mm-hmm. school was going to benefit from this building. And, and um, we, we, we said yes. But here, here was the, the, the kind of the hidden thing behind the curtain. I, I, was, I was not an enthusiastic, passionate, in love with giving tither. Quite frankly, um, I held money tight. Um, it, it was it was a stronghold in my life, and I think part of it was just because of the background I came from. Right. Diane Rose grew up in a family that was a regular giver. She has she has a heart of generosity. So if there were ever points of contention in our marriage, even in those first seven or eight years, it was very often around the issue of money and even giving. So, but I say yes to Clark, <clears throat> and I go to the very first meeting we're going to have with the committee, wondering why am I here. Right, And he goes to his Bible and says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to pack some verses with you because I really feel like these are the, th- this is the essence of what I want to, for people at Eastside to experience. He says, I'm not interested in how much money we raise. He says, I want our people's faith to grow. And he turns to Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and I'm going to hit the highlights because they're, this is a milestone in our life. It's a milestone, yeah. It is a milestone. Will a man rob God? You have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Okay, and now there's an opening line. Do I want to be cursed? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. And some translation says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. And Clark stopped right there, and he looked at us. He said, ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand there's, there's several places in the Word of God where God says, test me, and all the outcomes are not good. <laughs> not good at all. This is the only one in Scripture where the outcome is a promise that's positive. Test me in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Mm. Now, he didn't say prosperity financially. He just says such blessing that you won't have room to receive it. That sounds a lot bigger than just the issue of cash or crops. Then he says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor the, 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 nor the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And then get this, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. Hmm. Now, when I read these verses and Clark explained them to, to us, it, his purpose hit my heart. I was not struck about the issue of money and giving money. I was struck by the issue of what do I have, what do I put my trust in? And we, we put our trust, I'd put my trust in Christ, uh, but I wouldn't put my trust in the financial aspect and the physical aspects of parts of my life. And this, so this was a faith issue to me. And so I went home and literally wrestled with this. I didn't even really share that much about it with Diane initially. And we had to turn in a pledge, and we turned in a pledge, but I keep these passages keep challenging me and you know, even things like, do I do I want to have the, do I want to have the devourer attacking my family, or my career? No. Well, here's a promise of, of, of protection. 
if, if we'll be faithful in an area of stewardship, financial stewardship. We'd already turned in a, a, a pledge. Uh, for about two weeks, I had no peace about it. <clears throat> Finally, one night, I rolled over to, and God had been giving me a new number. <laughs> He'll sometimes do that. Well, it, had to be, it happened to be more than double what we turned in as a pledge. And I didn't know any way we were going to do it. So for two weeks, I'm wrestling with this number in quiet time, driving to work. I haven't told her, I haven't told Diane about it. Finally, one night I rolled over and said, honey, I don't have any peace about the pledge we turned in. <clears throat> I feel like we need to change it. And I feel like it ought to be X instead of Y. She turns on, and she starts laughing. The lights are out. And I thought, okay, she, thought, she thinks I'm out of my mind. <clears throat> but she turns on the light, goes to her Bible. There's a passage in Psalms that says, open your mouth wide and see if I'll not fill it. And she'd written a number, a number by that verse. She'd written it in her Bible. She'd have written yeah. it in her Bible. Well, I did a real quick math. Okay, the pledge was for three years. That number, three years, 52 weeks a year. Because she had written a weekly pledge or something. Right? Yes, a weekly yeah. pledge. Well, it was within four hundred within four hundred dollars in the number God had placed in my heart. Hmm. Well, we we cried and we laughed, and two days later we changed the pledge. And it was the following week that Jimmy Collins, who was the COO for Chick Fil A, called me. I hadn't seen him in almost two years. He calls me and said, hey, we don't have a marketing department, and we want to know if you might have an interest in talking to us about starting a marketing department at Chick-fil-A. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking two things. Number one, I, I know you don't have a marketing department, or you would have done that deal with me. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, isn't God mysterious? Hmm. <clears throat> In fact, I didn't want to insult Jimmy, but I almost started laughing. It was, it was almost comical. I said, sure, let's talk. Now, remember, I interviewed with Six Flags for a day. Right. So I figured, what's two or three days? I, love, I, I do love this business. I, I have a lot of admiration for the founder. It's private. It's here in Atlanta. Six Flags has asked me to move two or three times. I didn't know what that would eventually look like. Sure. Sure, let's talk. All right, so that was in early August, and I'm going to shorten the story for you. It's now early December, uh, and we're still talking. Right. We're still interviewing. Which is crazy. It's like and five it's, months. It's five months, <laughs> and, it's, and it's stealth, and I do have a job I like. I'm having a lot of fun at it. Yeah. It's one of the best marketing jobs in the city of Atlanta. Sure. So I don't want to screw that up, you yeah. know. And I'm sitting in Truett Cathy's office, the founder, in oh, early yeah. December, and it's at Truett I think I can help you. I love what you got here. I love your, your business model. I love the values you've got in this business. Um, but this is getting a little difficult. <clears throat> Five months. Five months. And I looked <laughs> at him, and, said, and he's about 60. And I, I said, true. what are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? Am I the guy? And he had this little squeaky voice. And he said, I have no idea. All I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but this I do know. If we invite you to come here, it's because we know we can trust you, and we're going to have fun together. Hmm. A little pause, and he said, the most important decision we make here is who we invite into the organization. So if we invite you, I don't expect you to go anywhere else. Not because I'm going to put some sort of horse collar around you, because you're not going to want to go anywhere else. 
Now, after having four jobs my first eight professional career years, I'm thinking, what? What is he been, <laughs> what's in that sandwich he's eating? <laughs> well, I tell you that story because um, I worked for the guy for 34 years. Not one time did he ever call me into his office and say, you screwed up, why did you do that? I don't support you on that idea or that, that decision. Not once. Zero. Now, did I make some mistakes? Some well, I, I want you, we, we didn't do this in first service. I want you to talk about a $2 million yeah. a, in a time where it, what, oh, you yeah, weren't yeah, a $12 yeah. billion dollar company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Well, the first, the, the <clears throat> end of the second year of my career, they already had a promotion on the books for 1982 that was called First and Best, and it was designed to counter the introduction of the McDonald's chicken sandwich. Right. But they were already had it in the works when I joined them. Well, my role was, uh, pardon the pun, I beefed it up. I beefed up the media. <laughs> I beefed up the media plan. Uh, we we added some strong creative to not only newspaper inserts but direct mail, and it was fundamentally your typical fast food coupon promotion. Right. Because that's the way everybody else. That's the way does everybody it. else is doing. I mean, it. And and it's gotta, the way, ch way Chick Fil A been doing it. Sure, They've been sure. marketing the way everybody else does it. Deals. <clears throat> so this thing outperforms anything that we thought would, would happen, and in large part because I beefed up the media plan and the creative apparently too much, and it overperforms the budget by $2 million, and that's hitting the corporate balance sheet. Now this that's, is a, that's, that's a, a big business, hit. That, that's a big hit on a business that's got $100 million in sales, gross sales. Right. And the, I'm, I have to expect the, the accountants to come put salt on my yard or something, right. you know, just... And, and at the same time, we're entering, we've got the 1982 financial crisis where money's costing 18, 19% to borrow money. The mall business is going in the tank as a result. Retail sales are going down. Truett's borrowed money for the first office building for Chick-fil-A. And here I come with a $2 million mistake on top of that. He did not say anything to me. Now, I didn't go looking for a conversation with him, <laughs> but I did go to Jimmy Collins, and I said, Jimmy, I said, after about a week and realizing what was going on, I said, Jimmy, i got to apologize. I, I said, quite frankly, I think this is a case where I was, I was probably arrogant and too aggressive in, in the context of not knowing enough about the business yet. And he said, well, don't worry about it. First of all, I was part of the decision, too, and I've told you I was part of the decision. And he said, besides that, we just invested $2 million in your education, and you're never going to make that mistake again. <laughs> well, he was prophetic because that mistake completely reshaped how I and my team would look at marketing the Chick-fil-A brand. Right. Couponing, discounting, deals, over, done. We're going to market Chick-fil-A in a way where people are willing to pay full price and be glad to pay full price. Right. And we're going to add value to the experience, through not through pricing, but we're going to add, add value through the experience, through the food, through the, the way people are treated, mm -hmm. even the way we market the business. Right. So that ultimately people will be gladly not only pay full price, but then they'll tell their friends and we build brand ambassadors. So that mistake was catalytic and helped us form the strategic foundation, marketing right. foundation. Marketing for, foundation. For for, for years to come. Forever, forever. Yeah, forever. And, and, and so the end of that, that experience was in, in Truett's office was, 
they still didn't invite me to join the business for another two weeks. But uh, just before Christmas, I went to work. I went to work for them in January 1981, and they were right. They didn't have a marketing department. I had the incredible experience of building an organization, building a plan um, from scratch. Awesome. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, just it, it, I mean, as you look back, and we, we're going to talk more about milestones as we go along, hit some of these key points, but especially that start, that interaction with God that led, in your view, I mean, yes. this is your story, not yes, mine, yes, but yes. in your view, well, you're right or wrong, me up good. <laughs> uh, in your view, of that led to the phone call from Chick-fil-A. Laura, yeah. Laura and I have had that similar situation where God asked us to do something pretty sacrificial, and it was just at, uh, within a month or a week, it was just, it's crazy how God test me in this. I mean, it's just really powerful. And by the way, let me just say, before you, let me say, this was not planned. This is the first service. Like, how did you get that guy to come and help you with your building campaign? I said, we planned this months and months ago, last summer, way before we ever knew. We weren't even an escrow on the property at all. And we had already set the date and the time and everything. I mean, honestly, this was, and, and he brought this up on the first, first service. And I was like, Thank you, Lord. Or you guys think I'm incredible that I can pull somebody like this to help us with our, our silly building campaign. It's just a fact. It's yeah, just a reality. Just it's just the reality of God. Yeah. So let me pick up on the story. And this is also in the context of 1982. That financial crisis created a real cash flow crisis for Chick-fil-A. It was the first time they'd ever had their sales go down. Um, we've got to do something to rein in cash spending, cash flow. So the two previous year, we'd opened 100 stores, and we, we got to cut stores. As it turned out, in 1983, we only opened 13. Uh, we froze in hiring any more staff. <clears throat> we had mall leases we just sat on. Hmm. We, couldn't, we, we couldn't afford to build them out yet. But Truett came to our young executive committee and said, what do you guys got to do about this? Crash process. And we're, we're like, well, we, we didn't what create the problem. What are you guys going to do about this? <clears throat> and he said, no, it doesn't matter who created the problem. We, you've got to help me figure out what we're going to do here. I can handle a lot of things, but I can't handle financial problems. Because uh, this is a man who came through the Depression. Sure. I mean, it, this is the greatest generation, this is, right? This is, this yeah, is greatest generation. Funny. I mean, this is, this is a s tough issue for him. He didn't he he want to see that kind of experience again in his business. So and by the way, he he started with just a little dwarf. Oh, he grill. started with the dwarf house, the dwarf grill. Dwarf grill in that, that got bigger and yes. got to a dwarf house. I, mean, I think we might have some pictures of it. 1946, when he came back from the, <coughs> excuse me, came back from the war, he opened the dwarf house with his brother Ben. Unfortunately, Ben died in a car, a, a plane crash two years later. Then, when he expanded the dwarf grill, he called it the dwarf house. Because <laughs> he went, the first one was a, literally a converted little house that had ten stools and four booths in it, and the dwarf, the dwarf house still sits on that site, that original site in Hapeville, Georgia. That little restaurant today does over ten million a year in sales. Um, you can still go through the little dwarf store, which makes sense. I mean, there are you are selling <clears throat> it's a landmark sandwich, store. Right? Yes, you are selling I mean, a chicken and this is where he created the Chick Fil A sandwich. He ran the dwarf grilled. For over 21 years before he even created the Chick-fil-A sandwich. Right, I mean, right. he's a restaurateur. He's just trying to take care of his family. And the only reason he created the Chick-fil-A sandwich was fried chicken was slowing all the other orders down. Right. Skin on bone in. He figured out a way to get rid of that. Right. Okay, and so it was his sister in his 1967, sister. <laughs> 1967 who came to him and said, Hey, Truett, we don't have any food in the mall other than sit-down restaurants. Why don't you bring that chicken sandwich over to Greenbrier Mall where she had a card shop? We need some walk-around food. And 
it wasn't like he was a strategic genius. He, he was just, okay, let me cut, I'll go mm-hmm. check that out. Mm-hmm. That little restaurant we just showed on the screen, the first small restaurant in 67 was less than 400 square feet, and it did over $167,000 in its first year. And today dollars is a million and a half bucks or more. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do another one until two years later. Mm-hmm. But he realized something here. Something here. So that's how the mall business started. Right, right. And the guy who was the COO that initially reached out to me uh, was, uh, at the time, a restaurant design engineer who helped Truett design those first two restaurants. He later became Truett's full-time COO. Um, So uh, let me go back to 1982. So back to 1982, we have roughly 140 stores, the financial crisis. We go off to Lake Lanier to figure out how we're going to deal with this cash flow. This is a significant milestone. This is another significant milestone. And you have to understand, my career experience up to that point is principally hinged upon the traditional paradigm. The marketing guys is, is in charge of driving sales and transactions and performance, performance, right. performance. So, which obviously with the, the promotion I did to, to, to the extreme, we go to Lake Lanier, we spend about two-thirds of a day, and we do all the things you would think we would do to trim expenses. Free staff, cut store count, cut budgets. And we're sitting around late that first afternoon, and Dan Cathy, I talked about it in the book, looked at the group and said, I think we got another issue we've got to talk about. we got a lot of new staff, a lot of new operators who may not understand how Dad looks at this business. They may not really fully understand why we're in business, and it's, then it's more than just about selling chicken sandwiches. Well, you had some young executive committee members, including me, that didn't know all the ins and outs of that either. Right. And so we said, Truett, tell us. What's important to you? And this was unbelievable. He starts unpacking. He says, well, I've had a lot of crises in my life. I've had one restaurant that burned down. I had one that didn't make it. I've had two episodes where I thought health issues where I thought I was going to die. I've lost my brother in a plane crash. This is not my first merry-go-round, uh, merry-go-ride with a crisis. I, I'm, I'm at peace with this because... I see the business and the sandwich as a gift from God. Hmm. Just as much as my salvation and my relationship with Christ is a gift. That's a huge statement, Steve. I mean, that's a huge statement. He used to always say, I'm not smart enough to create this sandwich. I just put chicken between two pieces of white bread. Right. (laughs) But he messed around with the recipe for five years in the dwarf house until people fell in love with it. And God gave him, he's right, God gave him a gift. A simple little chicken sandwich. And he says, I want people to understand my primary concern is to steward the gift. That's the headline. To steward the gift. And we started fleshing out, and we got words all up on posters around the room for the next day and a half. Fleshing out, okay, what does steward the gift look like, given Truett's perspective, not just the business, but his life. Right. And this is where I began to understand that Truett Cathy did not look at life like so many of us do, where his faith is over here and his business is over here. He, he did not silo his faith from his business. He, he had a life walk, and it was a faith walk. Fully integrated. Fully integrated. Yeah. And he didn't go around getting on soapboxes, giving sermons or anything. That wasn't his style. But he felt like the business was a platform to serve people and to reflect the light of, of grace because he'd experienced grace, a life of grace through the business, a life of honoring and, and accepting and showing caring to anyone who walked into his dwarf house or ultimately into a Chick-fil-A restaurant. 
And so after another two days, we crafted the corporate purpose to try to capture what was truth heart, uh, which we'll throw up on the screen. Glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Now, you guys, you guys, he, he never wanted to put Bible verses no, on cups no, and all that. No, he's no like, tracks in restaurants, right? no. And, and, but not, not because he's against the expansion of the no. kingdom. His giving clearly reflected his yes. desire for the kingdom. Correct. But his position was, and he was very clear on this with us, emphatic. I do not want to use the business as a platform for politics, social issues, or religious expression. If there is any expression in the business, I want to reflect the grace of Christ in me, our family, and through those that we serve. Of course, the loudest statement he made, really, was close not on close on Sundays. Yes. I mean, that's well, even that decision was made because he wasn't willing to ask. It wasn't just an issue of being able to worship on Sunday. He didn't want to ask people to do what he wasn't willing to do, hmm. and sure never did. I'm not willing to work on Sunday, so I'm not going to ask anybody to work on Sunday. Which is actually going to be reflective of the operator model later, is which is an upside that down. That is correct. And he unfair. used to commonly say, and he'd make a joke about it, but I, I mean he meant it. If you, can't, if you can't be successful and support your family in six days and do something else, <laughs> you're, you're doing the wrong thing. Now, by the way, we passed on this, but when the, your first meeting, you looked on on his desk, and you saw Proverbs 22.1, and... You saw well, him I, well, live I was that. About, yes. Everything ran through that yeah, matrix. Yeah, that, that last interview, I was about to walk out of his office, and I made a comment. He said, "Why do you?" His last question: "Why do you want to come here?" Well, part of what, part of it was him and his values and the culture he created. But I, I also said, "True, I think you have the, the foundation here for a great brand." Hmm. And I would love to be a part of shaping a great brand. There aren't many of them out there, quite frankly. And he looked at me that naive, cute businessman, he said, well, what's a brand? <laughs> and I looked at that verse on his desk. I said, that's a brand right there, Truett. A good name is to be more valued than great riches. That's what a brand's all about. It's a promise. It's a promise people can trust. And, and if you have a brand, if you have a promise that people can trust, they'll actually reward you for it. And he made decisions principally on two fundamental fil filters, the corporate purpose, and will this decision build the reputation of our brand or will it hurt it? And there was not a greater, when we started giving him tools like free sandwich cards and the cow campaign and stuff like there was not a greater brand ambassador in the business than Truett Cathy because he loved promoting and building the reputation of Chick-fil-A. So let's talk about it. So we, we've been going through this, the wilderness, and then crossing the Jordan. We've been talking about idolatry, some people think, for five years. It's only been about three, four or five weeks. <laughs> but, um, so this idea of idolatry. Now think about it. If, if everything runs through the matrix and you have an idol, if there's something, and for you, you said early, it was money. Money was my idol, and yes, so everything had to filter through that. You were able to break through that idolatry through, yes. through what you, you and Diane committed to. But then what's fascinating is that that idol never jumped up. So everything filtered through Proverbs 22.1 and the corporate purpose statement. Everything ran through yes. there. So does this affect our stewardship? Does this affect how we treat people? Does this affect our name? Not, is it, how's this going to affect the bottom line first? Now, right. it's not like they were unaware of the bottom line, but it did, it would, you wouldn't go around the corporate purpose in yes. Proverbs 22.1 to get and make a bottom line decision. Is no, that, is that right. fair so to I'll, say? I'll expand on that a little bit. 
uh, I look in the rearview mirror and I think about the corporate purpose and I talk about it in the book. Um, most corporate purposes or, or inst- some sort of enterprise purpose, could even be your family for that matter, they tend to be aspirational. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I discovered over time was this purpose was not only aspirational, it was practical. Hmm. Because major initiatives, major decisions, just trust me, our executive committee, we'd be talking about major investments, major strategic moves, major staff additions, leadership additions. We would ask the question, is this going to glorify God? Is it going to be good stewardship? Can we do this in a way that reflects good stewardship? And at the end of the day, will it positively influence people? which also connects to Proverbs 22.1. Right. Those things became great litmus tests for leaders on how to make decisions. And if, if there was a question mark, we'd either say, no, we're not going to do it, or we go off and take a week and pray about it and come back. So it actually made decision-making easier. Hmm. The other key points you alluded to, Truett, he cared about health, financial health. Principally, financial health to him was positive cash flow. He was, not pre, he was not preoccupied with return on investment or net profit percentage or building stockholder equity for him and his family. He just wanted the business to be financially healthy, sustain itself. But he was not focused on making a profit. He was focused on building a sustainable business that would attract great people and serve people. Now, let me dig on the attract great people. This is the other thing I discovered because I experienced it firsthand. He was motivated by by seeing people thrive. Thrive in their fullness of who they were. He loved young people. He built foster homes. He gave away, and they still do millions and millions of dollars in scholarships, summer camps, um, advanced education programs down uh, in South Georgia. I mean, it goes on and on. He just loved helping people reach their full potential, not just children, but grown people as well. So he gave all of us, including me, an environment where we could thrive. Hmm. I mean, how many times times did he call me to his office and say, you screwed up? You made a big mistake. None. Now, I did. I mean, I I told you about one. 35 35 years. Not you once, made your mistakes, made but them. not once not one was there a condemnation no, no. vibe. Well, even the point Jimmy made, even the way tr- Jimmy handled that, where he said, we just invested $2 million in education. They realized that people are going to make mistakes. And, but what, because of that position, I wasn't afraid of risk-taking. It fostered an environment of innovation, but fundamentally fostered an environment. You have the freedom at Chick-fil-A to pursue who you want to be as a total person professionally, personally, spiritually. Chick-fil-A became a platform of influence for thousands of people. Uno won here. Sure. And um, we all realize when you have that kind of opportunity, what happens? Your sense of accountability actually goes up. It, it's, it's, it, it's inversely. Not, it's not accountability <laughs> through <laughs> no, line atta- authority relationship. It's accountability through the responsibility of the role you play in stewarding this business and this brand because the way you steward it affects your platform. Of course it does. It's why the Apostle Paul says, take care with your liberty. What does that mean? I'm giving you, the Lord has given us extraordinary liberty not to have to be confined within these religious boundaries. We have our orthodoxy. I mean, we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, we hold to some very orthodox principles. 
but the ability to have that liberty, but you don't use that liberty for yourself. Right. Because Jesus knew it, right? right? As I give grace, you think everybody's going to go crazy because right. right. you're saved by grace and not by... <clears throat> no, it's the inverse is always so that, true. That all, that's exactly right. And this all sounds really nice. So let me give you a, the ultimate practical illustration of it. And it's the Chick-fil-A operator model. Um, in the first two stores, Truett opened in those first two malls, he had managers. And in a matter of months, these, op these managers are calling him with questions and problems and what did I do about this, Truett, and what about this? And Truett literally calls Jimmy Collins to his office, who's still a consultant, and helping him design a third and fourth store, and he tells Jimmy, cut it off. I don't want to build any more stores. Jimmy says, why? I don't want these people calling me. I, 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 <laughs> he, didn't, he was not motivated by building wealth. He says, I don't need it. I, I got a great living. I'm taking care of my family. I don't need a bunch of people calling me, and, and I don't want to manage an army of, of, of own owners and managers. Now, Jimmy's thinking, no, wait a second. You got something pretty good here, Truett. I mean, Jimmy could see the potential of a cookie-cutter sure. concept. Sure. I don't know how God orchestrated it between those two guys, but somehow the two of them collaborated and they said, you know what, we'll throw out the manager model. We're going to create an, an, what they call a Chick-fil-A operator model that we'll, buy, we'll find a site, we'll build a restaurant, we'll equip the restaurant, and we're going to attract an independent contractor. And instead of having an organization that's built from the top down, we're going to build an organization from the bottom up. Hmm. And we're going to build it on local leadership, not national leadership. Local marketing, not national marketing local community engagement and service, not orchestrating everything out of the home office. And so they created a model where the independent operator doesn't put up any equity other than a deposit. Today it's $10,000. You pay $10,000 to get a <laughs> Chick-fil-A franchise, and you'd pay a million and a half to two million minimum to get a McDonald's. Oh, just the upfront fee. Up just front the franchise fee. Just up front yeah, fee. Not, yeah, not to count the investments. So we're going to take all the risks, financial risks, but what we're going to do is we're going to attract you for your ability to lead, attract, keep, and train and develop great people, and your ability to grow the business, not just in terms of sales and financially, but to grow the reputation, to grow the community engagement. In essence, they figure out a way to recreate the entrepreneurism of Truett Cathy. They got a local business leader, not a manager, they got a local business entrepreneur leader into every restaurant. And when I joined them in 1981, the average operator income was roughly $40,000 in the mall business. Now catch this. Now catch this. Last now, year, the average operator income was over half a million dollars. So you own one Chick-fil-A store. store, and you're making half a million dollars. Now, this is important because, first of all, it is a, it is a thrive deal. Truett was willing, and the way the operator makes their money is they, they pay percentage off the top for the brand and the, and the support services. After all their expenses, including their team members, they split the bottom line 50-50 with the home office. Half is their income, the other half goes to the home office and it's categorized as additional operator service charge for the assets. Correct. So that half a million a year is coming from their half. So let me tell you a story I told in the first service, a great illustration. Uh, operator in Houston, Jesse Salou, st who started in one of those mall stores hmm. in the 80s. Didn't write a profit check for three years trying to build that business in Houston. 
He comes up to Truett about 25 years later at a national meeting. I'm standing there with Truett. Jesse is now operating two freestanding restaurants. And he starts thanking Truett for the incredible journey and opportunity Truett's given him. In other words, he's thanking Truett for giving him the opportunity to thrive, not just financially, but in his total life. Because how much is he making this point? That year, he made almost a million dollars from those two <laughs> restaurants. Yeah. And Truett's congratulating him. He's got this big Cheshire grin on his face. And then he goes off to speak to some other people, and Jesse turns to me, and I look at Jesse, and I said, Jesse, you do know why he's got such a big grin on his face, don't you? And he says, sure I do, because whatever I made, he made. <laughs> <coughs> and he didn't have to do the work. I did the work. <laughs> How ingenious is that? It's yeah. ingenious, and it's generous, and it's fundamentally built around the principle of helping it's people When you, guys, helping were, people when you guys were hiring, you weren't even looking for former restaurateurs. No, no, not at all. You were looking fact, for we, business we, we leaders. we kind of shunned them. Yeah, because they brought in we all their paradigms, their paradigms and everything and else. We didn't want their trash in the business. Right, right. So they had to rethink right. everything. Now, one of the things I love about this story that's, again, i, I trying to, where, where is our journey at Church of the Red Door and thinking about this? So you remember we went through this whole case study of David. And what we learned about David, a man after God's own heart, is that what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. So one battle is fought this way, and then he inquired of the Lord, and he said, don't do it the same way. This time I want right. you to go around the back, wait till you right. hear the marching of the troops in the balsam trees, etc. What was that? It was, first of all, it drove us to Jesus. Can we get our, all of our systems and say, well, I'll just do my system, I don't have to worry about Jesus. It forces you, drives you back to Jesus to have a relationship, which is what we evangelicals, you know, sort of, we have, have a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Because we're inquiring because he may tell us to do it differently this time. And in this case, in, in terms of a business, the Lord, Trude is open to the Lord's direction here. Right. And it becomes something that you kind of started, started you read something about Blue Ocean. Well, Can I, you help I, us understand we, what that means? I read a book called Blue, Blue Ocean Strategy and, and in the process of reading and I realized we were already doing some of it. It's built around the fundamental simple, where's the best place on a lake or in an ocean where there are no other boats? The blue still water. That's where you want to water ski or sail or, you know, sell your lot, yacht or whatever. And so how do you create a brand that has its own space? Even though there's a lot of other brands out there, you're in, a, you're in a space all to yourself, and you don't have any competition. And we'd kind of started that journey. We'd use the, I'd use the phrase of my team, and we adopted it. How do we find the renegade space? What do we, if, if competitors are doing this, what's the 180 position? Let's, right. let's figure out the opposite of that. If they're bringing in pre-made food and they're, you know, microwaving it and frying it on the side, how do we create fresh food? How do we make food from scratch? If they're, they're just turning and burning from transactions, how can we turn a focus to actual hospitality and treating people with respect and actually act like we know you're there and care about you? Uh, instead of marketing to create transactions, you know, focus on food and price and buy it today, let's focus on even entertainment through marketing and fun and create, create a smile that so we stand out all by ourselves. That really was the seed of what led to the Eat More Chicken campaign. So what happened was we had the opportunity to not only do that because of the values of Truett and the corporate purpose, we operationally we were able to do it because we had these great leaders in the restaurants. Yeah, these great people. So we are able to empower them to deliver a guest experience that no one else can deliver. Not just great food, but what's evolved, second mile service hospitality, 
marketing that's very community-based, engaged in, in, in the communities, and yet there's a, this umbrella of, of a brand that's fun that doesn't take itself too seriously with these, sure. these crazy cows out there telling people to eat more chicken. Right. Um, and it, it all, and even, in, even when we made the decision to get into college football, we decided, you know, we're going to start with one thing, peach bowl, adopt the Chick-fil-A peach bowl. How can we build a brand around the, the not just the, the media that goes with the game, but how can we build a brand around the bowl experience? And Truett was wholeheartedly in it. Uh, he completely supported it. In fact, he was the tiebreaker when the ultimate bowl deal came to the table with the executive committee. It's four to four. And it was your deal. You've been, was, work, oh, you've been, been working, working to craft for this over, thing for over two years. And, and, and then and, it's four to four at the executive team. And, in fact, I, I, I was urged by Dan to do it. We're sitting in a bowl game. There's 15,000 empty seats, and I made a comment about they need a title sponsor. And she said, well, why don't you do it? So I give her credit for kicking me in the butt and getting on with it. <laughs> and so, but ultimately, when the deal comes to the table, it's four to four, and Jimmy turns to Truett and says, Truett, what do you want to do? He says, I think it's a great idea. Let's do it. Well, I can sit here and tell you story after story where that's what Truett did. He looked at me and said, I like it. Let's do it. I trust you. Over and over. Hmm. Sounds like a good idea. I trust you. He Let's never micromanaged never, you ever. Never. Ever. I, Which, how, what a boss. What kind of boss is that? Is that awesome or what? Awesome. I had an awesome job. So the, the, there was this convergence. Was it a coincidence? No, I think it was divine. I'm, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it. I think there was this convergence of moving from just local marketing to regional and national with Chick-fil-A Bowl, college football, and the advent of the cow campaign. So talk about the cow campaign. How did it come about? <clears throat> well, we knew, we, knew, we knew we were on the verge of doing a bowl deal. We also had the Olympics coming to Atlanta. Was that 96? 96. 96, the Olympics. So we'd gone to a group in Atlanta, uh, Dallas called the Richards Group. So we, we need creative that is blue ocean, doesn't look like everybody else's, and we want it to be fun because we, we don't want to be taking ourselves too serious, and everybody else is out there beating on people to buy XYZ at 99 cents. We don't want to do that. And they were the ones that came up with the cow campaign, and it was originally just the two cows on a board that said, eat more chicken. <clears throat> that one right there. <laughs> that, it started with that one board in Atlanta next to the Olympic Stadium, summer of 70, 1996. And nothing like this had really. I mean, no, no, so, no, no, nothing like no. this. <clears throat> and our phones start ringing. People start love, loving it. So it's not up a week. Now, this is, there's, certain, there's clues telling me this is a home run. Well, this is one of the clues. The phone rings, and it's true, and he wants me to come to his office. Well, he never tell, <laughs> tells me to come to his office. It's a good story. Oh, my goodness. What have I done? <laughs> he walks up. I walk up there, and he's got a guy sitting across the desk from him, Bill Smith. I'll use Bill Smith. Truett says, uh, Steve, this is Bill Smith, and he's, he's got a problem with that billboard you put up. Notice he said the billboard that I put up. <laughs> uh, he is the... Uh, Executive Director for the Georgia Cattlemen's Association. <laughs> and he wants to know what you're going to do with that billboard. So I turned, and Truett's straight face serious. He was a practical joker. <clears throat> I looked at Bill and I said, well, Bill, um, I know Truett raises Angus for a hobby, and that's why the guy was there. Truett's a member of the association. <laughs> But he makes his living selling chicken, and he's hired me to help him sell a lot of it. 
and it looks like these these crazy cows are actually helping us sell a lot more chicken. So <laughs> unless Truett tells me to take it down, it's staying up. And we turn to Truett, and he's got a big grin on his face now. He says, yeah, I think Steve's right. I think we'll leave it up. <laughs> really? <clears throat> and then a week later, we'd put the board up after we got off to a pretty fast start in Atlanta with it. We put it up in 20 markets, our top 20 markets, only one board a city. And uh, we're getting great feedback from it. And in Chattanooga, we find out that two, three kids have stolen the two cows off the board <laughs> and disappeared with them. So we sent out a press release that says, if, uh, if our cows will be returned, we will not prosecute. And in fact, we'll, we'll give whoever stole the cows, we'll give them Chick-fil-A for a year free. <laughs> <clears throat> well, the cows are returned. And the, the kids brought them back with bags on their head. <laughs> It went on the wire service. CNN picked it so up. So this is pre-social media. Pre-social media. So there's all this buzz, and we're, we're thinking, okay, now, we didn't just fall off a turnip trucks here. We got something. And that's when we went back to Stan and said, Stan, we think you have something here that's bigger just than one billboard. Take three weeks, take three months and work on a campaign where the, the iconic spokes bovines for the Chick-fil-A brand are sure. the cows. Sure. That's how it started. And the very first TV spot was produced in time for the very first Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl in January 1997. And the rest is history. The, the college, the football story, the bowl grew, our contracts with ESPN and CBS grew. Finally, the bowl became so prestigious and so successful, they were, we were invited to become part of the college football playoff rotation. We just hosted one of the semifinals this year with yeah. LSU and Oklahoma. Um, and I had to take that deal to the executive committee and Truett, and Jimmy was, Truett was the tiebreaker on that one too. For good reason, it, w it represented three times the investment we were spending on college football at the time. Wow, it's huge, yeah. Sa his answer was the same, sounds like a good idea to me. Let's do it. The Let's next, <laughs> the first month after the first college playoff cycle, our same store sales increase went from 8% to 11%. Which is huge. I which mean, is huge ridiculous. in January. And nothing has changed mm. except the visibility of being a part of the playoff system. It's just unbelievable. So let's talk about conceptually um, Matthew 541, mm -hmm. uh, second mile concept. Yes. That's also part of this renegade notion, isn't it? So it try was. to describe, of course, this is kingdom ethos, right? So. Go, if somebody <clears throat> asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two, Jesus says. Yes. So how do, you, how do we take that and take that into our families or into our, into our businesses or into our neighborhood or into our country clubs or wherever, kind of the Palm Springs? You know, how, does that, how did that work out for you guys? And then well, also Christ gave that charge to his disciples, <clears throat> to Jewish, Jewish, predominantly Jewish followers who are trying to live in the middle of a Roman empire. Right. And Roman soldiers had the authority to tell you to carry anything they were carrying for a mile, and you didn't ask questions. And Jesus said, I want you to carry two miles. And the question was, why? And he said, well, because when you get to the end of the two miles, I want you to tell them your master told you to do it. Well, who's your master? So the story of mm. who, is, who, who would motivate me to carry a pack for my enemy for two miles was the platform of second mile. So we've, we've spent the better part of the 20 years in the freestanding business really trying to hone our skills operationally, deliver a great, consistent food restaurant experience 
but we're wrestling with, okay, now what's the next part of the brand journey that no one else can do right. that will take Chick-fil-A to another level? And Truett was the catalyst for this unknowingly. This is so often the case, unknowingly. He had challenged us for two or three years to just ask team members, when somebody says, thank you, say my pleasure back. Well, he'd gotten it from the Ritz-Carlton because he'd seen it in operation in the Ritz-Carlton. And his point was, when somebody says, my pleasure to you, you can't help but smile. You have eye contact. <laughs> you feel respected and valued. And he'd been asking the operators to do this in the restaurants for three years, and it wasn't sticking. And finally, Dan, Kathy, myself, and a few others decided, you know, this is not going to stick. He's right. This is a great idea, but it's not going to stick if we don't figure out how to institutionalize it, systematize it. And the short of that was we benchmarked not only Ritz, but a lot of other companies who had great, great hospitality, right. great customer feedback. Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines and, and Nordstrom's and, and <coughs> Zappos and et cetera. <coughs> and then figured out, okay, how do, you, how, do you institution, how do you create standards for hospitality? It's like you require two pickles on a sandwich. I mean, literally, a consistent hospitality experience. It took seven years to develop it hmm. and systematize it hmm. and prove to operators, oh, by the way, if you do this, it's not just an issue of warm and fuzzy. People will, you will be creating more ambassadors and they'll grow your business. And we spent two years with this model in about 200 restaurants who were fully executing what we were developing. And in two years, those stores were outperforming the rest of the stores same store sales, average same store sales was double what the rest of the chain was. Double? Double. No marketing investment, an investment in this. An investment in people. So and so <laughs> hospitality became a place from which, and it led to the clarification of what is the core value of the Chick-fil-A brand, and you had the words on the screen earlier, where good meets gracious. Mm -hmm. And we didn't write those words. We discovered in talking to the Chick-fil-A customers that the, the per personal experience was becoming even more important than the food. Right. People are so lonely and so um, desirous of respect and honor and courtesy that when they get any of it, particularly in an environment where, fast food environment, where it's the last thing they think they're going to get, they, they're drawn to it. They love it. They're surprised by it. And they go out and tell other people about the experiences they're having. Folks, I mean, how, how do you not? <laughs> it's just an expression you know, of grace. It's this expression of grace. This is our call. I mean, as followers of Jesus. I mean, this is our call to love your neighbor as yourself, to reach them where they are, go, in a, go an extra mile, whatever, whatever Now, I will put takes. a practical, the practical side of it is we did, we did have to figure out how to measure it. Because we wanted operators to understand that we're just as serious about this as the two pickles. And we used the measurements to determine which operators would have the opportunity maybe to move to a better store or get a second mm -hmm. one. Not only around operational performance, but about service, around per service performance. And what do you know? When you, when you tie, when you measure what you expect and you tie long-term performance to it, you get the performance that you want. But, but the Chick-fil-A family has fully embraced it. And because of the operator model, they're in a position like, like the GM at a Ritz to attract talent that's really good at hospitality. So now you have hospitality directors in Chick-fil-A restaurants, and they're attracting other people with the gift of hospitality.
Yeah. And you have other people that are focused on the, 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 the count, weigh, measure aspect of doing operation really well. So it's, it's created this cross-functional discipline within every restaurant of operational skills, hospitality skills, marketing skills, accounting and inventory skills. <clears throat> and what do you know? We have a business where people are learning how to thrive because they're learning not just how to run a cash register and push something across the counter. They're learning how to serve people in a total business context. And now over half the Chick-fil-A operators for the future are coming out of the existing restaurants. And then a lot of people are leaving Chick-fil-A mm. careers and going into other businesses. And Chick-fil-A has been this uh, university of mm. training for them to, for their next career. And Truett would have been applauding the whole way. The whole way. The whole way. The whole way, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the old Zig Ziglar. You know, you help other people get what they want, That's and exactly you'll find right. yourself getting. I have a want. story to tell you. I, we should have figured this out much, much earlier. But in the mall business, early in my career, uh, I don't, th I didn't experience this. Jimmy Collins tells a story. They're opening a store in a mall, and in the early days, everybody, all hands on deck, they all go. Right. <clears throat> and this store is open, and Truett is out front sampling Chick-fil-A chicken out in the front of the store in the mall. He's sampling <laughs> bites of chicken. And, and Jimmy's in the dining room and kind of helping behind the counter. And sure enough, this young lady behind the register, she's not smiling. So he goes to this, he goes to Jimmy, says, Jimmy, would you please ask that young lady to smile? And Jimmy says, I got it, I got it. He does it. And a little while later, Truett notices she's still not smiling. He, so Truett goes to Jimmy, asks Jimmy to do it again. I'm sorry, Truett, I'll take care of it. He does. She's still not smiling. Truett starts going back around the counter to get samples and intentionally goes by this young lady. And every time he goes by, he says, man, that, that smile of yours is infectious. <laughs> I, you have got to quit smiling. It's, we're, we're, we're getting a reflection off that smile. And every time he goes by her, he, he's thanking her. He's thanking her for that incredible smile. Well, what happened? You know, in a matter of 30 or 40 minutes, she's smiling. He understood fundamentally that smiles is a point of respect. Hmm. It's personal engagement. It's respect. Hmm. Just the way he felt in the Ritz when somebody said, my pleasure, and they had a smile on their face. So without saying it, what he's saying is, you are created in the image You're of God. You're worthy. You're created in the image exactly of, right. of God. You're, You're worthy, of being, You're You're worthy of being acknowledged and cared yeah. for. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. So in closing, <coughs> what, what are, what are Chick-fil-A today? It was $12 billion or 2,500 stores. You saw it at, in the 100-ish. I mean, this, this has to be yeah, a journey. $12 billion in sales last year. So it's just unbelievable. I mean, you've got per store and everything. I mean, the, the most successful per store fast food in the history of the world. And so... I know you, you and I actually started talking about this about six years ago because I had said, what's your biggest concern? And you said, you know, the concern is, is that we're able to transfer this ethos yes. into the generations to come. Yes. And it's been a big, big, big part of your heart. And it's the same with, I think, Laura and myself with our girls. How can we trans, what are we able to transfer into the next generation? There's always the risk of well, we just did it ourselves, and it's just kind of an assumption that you did it. And one of the things, you, when you went back and spoke recently, I think it was in May or something, yes. to all the employees, what did you tell them? If you think this is... <coughs> yeah, know. I think that's a good illustration to your point. Um, I left Chick-fil-A full-time at the end of 15, and 
quite frankly, I had not been back to the office other than board meetings uh, to really do, do anything. And they're growing over a billion dollars a year. They're adding 150, 175 new staff members a year. Plus at corporate? At, all, at the home at office. At corporate, yeah, we're not talking about that. <clears throat> and, of course, a lot of them are, you know, they're much young. In fact, a lot of them look like their parents drove them to work. You know, they're that, they're that young. <clears throat> but they invited me back on Founders Day, which I do once a year, to, to kind of help them recalibrate with the, the roots, the legacy roots of Truett. And I told them at the end of my remarks, I said, look, if, if I'm telling you what, I, what we told ourselves, so don't feel picked on. I'm going to repeat to you what we told ourselves when we were around the executive committee table. If we think the success of this business is a function of how smart we are, we're out of our minds. And I looked at them, and I said, that's true for you, too. You ain't that smart. You can't have a business that's growing double-digit same-store sales increase for the last six years and take credit for that. Hmm. That's God's favor. And I think it harkens back to what Malachi said about, <clears throat> you know, blessings, protection from the devourer, um, uh, the, the, your fruit will not fall to the ground. I mean, that is a business that is, and I told them, as long as you understand the most important thing in this business is that plaque out front that has the corporate purpose on it. If you forget that, you'll lose this business rapidly. And you could, in a matter of a decade, a it could be less than a decade. Less than a decade. Less than a decade. Now, they, I don't think they will. It's my prayer that they won't, and I still pray for them because you've got second and third generation Kathy families already engaged and embedded in the business, love their dad, fully committed to it. It is, it is what they know and love. And you've got, you got a new family, a new leadership family who's, who's many of them have 15 or 20 years you know, before right. some of us walked out. So they, they, know, what's, they know what's important. But... What I learned, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, was the most important thing in business is not strategy, it's culture. And you will not have a great brand if you don't have great culture. That's right. And it's the responsibility of leadership to cultivate the cultural soil of the business. And Truett did that all the time. And at all its core, time. Steve, it was a culture of honor. It was a culture you, of honor. You, you, you've used the words respect, yeah. you've yeah. used the word, you know. So, and that's why the book got written. Yeah, I decided a year over a year out. I said I'm going to write this down, first for my kids, for the people on staff who didn't get to work with Truett. Right. And if it has any any traction in the marketplace, fine, that's okay. Right. Yeah, you, you can't. You got to love the cows. You can't help. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't mind me. Just. You know. So I I didn't I didn't write the book initially for the marketplace. I wrote it for my own kids my family, and for the Chick-fil-A family because we, we didn't have a story about the brand. And uh, my prayer is that it will continue to help them bear fruit in the kingdom. Yeah. You know, one of Laura's and mine biggest challenges is that our kids, and they, now, you know, their spouse and one of their spouses, they didn't know us pre-Jesus, right? And yeah. so if you think, uh, if you see anything good, and we're imperfect people for sure, imperfect parents. I think Laura's almost perfect, but I'm an imperfect parent. But if you think this is anything other than Jesus in mm -hmm. our lives, Amen. you're crazy 
you're crazy. So last thing, uh, and I'd ask you to speak to it. I spoke to you a, a little over a month ago, and he was in New York about to go on the Stuart Varney show, and they said, we're just going to talk about this foundation issue and all the things with it related to FCA and Salvation Army and things. And you said, I'm not going on the show because I'm not going to speak about it. But I ask your permission, would, would you be able to just comment on this recent huge, and I know, now that you're speaking not as, you know, you're not even on the board anymore, you just right. got over the board last year, speaking as an independent observer, but can you speak to the recent publicity as it relates to the foundation giving? Well, I didn't want to go to Barney because I'm not involved in the business anymore, and right. I, I'm not in a position to speak to policy. Um, I think they chose to kind of read, read reset their pr protocol of giving. I can't speak to who they give to. Um, I, I, I do know this, that early on I learned that Truett was tithing the business. I was shocked when I saw him on the P&L the very first time. He and the Kathy family have always tithed the business. And they're giving into the foundation, not only that foundation, but multiple foundations. And this is a giving family. This is a tithing family. And I fully expect they're going to continue to support the ministries they love. They may not be through the Chick-fil-A Foundation, but I'm convinced they're going to continue to support the ministries they love. Yeah, and we're big FCA guys here in the Valley. We've got a yeah. number of FCA guys so here with Dine us. And I are too. So even what your involvement with FCA in Atlanta, in how, Atlanta. Many, how many guys do you have on the ground in Atlanta with Fellowship of Christian 130 staff looking members for 30 more this in year. Atlanta looking for 30 more. And a lot of that, a, a lot of that has been, you know, many many people's involvement but you were a huge catalyst to that and among many other things i he for those of you who don't know he was chair of our board for links and still is our close friend and and uh within our communities to reach through the platform of golf and other things has this been a good morning for you has this been a good morning <clears throat> well I, I will say to you and diane thanks for being our friends we love you so much and i look forward to and like, i'm excited about i said this first season uh, first service i am so excited about the season that you're yeah, in i think you're exciting. probably going to be in one of the most fruitful seasons that you've ever been you have you know i i really look forward to the next 10 years and observing and seeing how god continues to use both of you yeah. so i'm going to let steve exit stage back he's going to be outside i don't know how many books we have left but uh get him if we we'll we'll order more if you want some we'll have them here uh, we got plenty. Or two. We got plenty of books. Uh, I, I cannot, I can highly, highly recommend the book. Uh, I had a, one of my dear friends, the Ferris's, he's a corporation, and, and they bought, he said, I'm buying them for all my employees, and uh, so it's beautiful. So, Steve Robinson, let's give him a warm round. So, uh, what's our takeaway from this? You know, well, this is not how you do church on Sunday. Uh, inquire of the Lord. You know, I, I've had a vision to do something like this, and I want to do more of this to integrate what we learn from the Word each week, because we're a Word-driven church, what we learn from the Word, and then application studies to be able to see it, whether it be in the corporate world, whether it be in the sports world, whether it be in the entertainment world or whatever. I am fascinated with people who then take the gospel and then try to converge into a secular world and what that looks like to give us some help and pattern. But remember, it's a pattern in some ways, but it's also what is the Lord calling you to do? What is the Lord calling? How would he call you to steward the rest of your life? Say, well, you know, I'm retired or whatever. Some of you are, some of you aren't. Uh, you might be surprised that what the Lord can do through a willing vessel, and you don't have to know all the answers. 
You know, what I get from Truett is he was an extraordinary man with some extraordinary convictions that was wise enough to get the right people around him. And that's called community. And then create a culture of honor that was sustainable that now, can you see that Steve, 35 years, can you still see the respect that he has? If you can work with somebody for 35 years and have the level of respect, he was, Truett was doing something right and it was simply biblical Jesus followership. That's what it was. That's what... To me, that's what makes Chick-fil-A successful. So uh, anyway, and we don't have a Chick-fil-A here. And so every single one of you go out and say, why don't we have a Chick-fil-A here? Because I've been telling him that for 10 years. I said, why don't we have a Chick-fil-A here? So anyway, let me close in prayer. I hope you had a great morning. I hope this was invigorating to you and your faith. I hope that our faith grew as a church this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for Truett and his his sold-out stance. And he was a man like Abraham. That was even before the law. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Lord, if there's this even one person, either online watching today or somewhere down the road on YouTube or somewhere, or maybe even here, right here in, in the service, that imagines somehow they have to work their way to God. No, it is truly grace. It is truly grace. It is unmerited. You just come to Jesus. He did all the work. He did all the work on the cross 2,000 years ago to cover us in our sins. And then out of that, out of that liberty that we now have to freely access the creator of the universe, Lord, that we would, like Chick-fil-A, like Steve and Diane, steward our lives in such a way that would not only benefit you and your kingdom, but benefit every single person we come across in culture, even right here in the Coachella Valley. Lord, we thank you for this morning. May you be glorified and lifted up through church at the Red Door and all the churches here in the valley. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great, great week. We love you at Church of the Red Door.